I grew up uh, a long time ago. Uh, I grew up uh, going every Sunday from the time I can remember, and I believe, actually, I would have to consult with mom and dad, but I don't think I would have to really do much consulting because I know them. I'm pretty sure that even before I remember, I went to church every single Sunday. When I got old enough and could start learning, I went to the kindergarten and first grade and second grade. And in those days, Sunday school was big and there were lots and lots of uh, my fellow children in there together. And various teachers taught me, uh, volunteers of various uh, uh, various backgrounds shared with me their faith as they taught whatever lesson it was. And through all of those years, somehow in the midst of it all, I figured out that the message I was getting was if I got all the answers right, I was okay with God. And so I began to memorize portions of scripture. I began to know the story backwards and forwards. Uh, now, I don't want any of you to ever try to test this, but pretty much if you talk to me about something, I read this thing in the Bible the other day, uh, and do you know where that is, James? There's a pretty good chance that at almost 60 years old, having spent a lot of time with the Bible, as I have, partially for work, but mostly for personal uh, growth, uh, I vaguely have a sense of where that's from and who might have said that. Uh, because it becomes a part of you. So I grew up with that sense that what was most important in my relationship with God was faith, which I was understanding as certitude, absolute certainty about what and who exactly God was. And so... I, and I'm also the first child in my family, which means I'm, I'm naturally, first children tend to be the responsible ones, the ones who take responsibility for everything. And I'll never forget, as I began to think about entering ministry, someone who shared with me James chapter 3. Now, there really is a book of James in the Bible, not James chapter 3, but the James chapter 3, which says not many of you should be teachers because you'll be held to a higher standard. So suddenly, as a preacher-teacher guy, because that's what I do, I'm talking to people about faith. I better be daggone careful because I'm held to a higher standard. What if I tell you something that completely leads you astray, that drives you from the church, that makes you forget about God? What will happen? Well, apparently, I will get extra lashes in the eternal pit of hell, at least if I believe James chapter 3 and understand, as I did, the 20-year-old self of me did. Certitude was absolutely important. So every Sunday when I got up to preach, I didn't ask questions. I told you what it said as I understood it because you needed to be as certain about this as me. And somehow I magically thought if I said the right words, you would get the right answers. And when you went before St. Peter, if there, isn't, if there is even a saint, we, we draw that picture all the time. Peter standing at the gate and everybody checked. When you get 
when you get to your testing place, you will pass. Why? Because of that James. So when I finally get to the same door, God says, you know, James, mm. well, actually, God doesn't talk to me yet because God first get past Peter. So Peter says, mm, dude, some of these people that you have trained, oh, my gosh, they give the best answers. Mm. They are so certain. And I was sure that was what it was all about. I was sure that it was all about. Uh, fast forward to my mid-20s when my life fell apart. And all the things I thought God had promised me did not come to fruition. And I left ministry to try to hold my life together. And I applied to law school and was accepted and thought maybe law school was the right direction and maybe my life would come together. And then three years later, I was like, crud, I got to do that preachy, teachy thing again. Apparently that's after, this is after three years of pastoral counseling to work through all of my stuff. It was clear to me this was what I was supposed to do. But the problem was God didn't look the same for me anymore. It's not that God changed. It's that I saw God differently. The truth is, the way you see God is not the way I see God. And the way I see God is not the way you see God. Because we each come from our own perspective. Now what we share in common is the belief that God's love is big enough to cover us in all of that. At least I hope that's what we share. That God's love is big enough to say that there are certain things that are perhaps essential. Like, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. Those things feel essential. But whether or not I wear a head covering or you wear a head covering, those are probably not essentials. I know some churches you go to, everybody wears a hat. Particularly all the women. Because it goes back to an image of women keeping their head covered in church. And so for them, that's an important part of their faith. None of you are wearing hats. Now, some of you at home may, since you've come to church at home, even from home, you might be wearing a hat. Uh, and it might be because you feel like you have to cover your head, and that's perfectly fine. The bottom line is, the God I came to know was different. And it was because in my mid-20s, I was thrown into deep doubt. I identified with Thomas. In fact, there have been various points in my life I have dared to demand that God show up so I could put my finger in the wounds. So let me read you the story of Thomas. As you might remember from last week, Mary Magdalene uh, has found out the tomb is empty and she's had a conversation with Jesus, who she thought was the gardener in the... Uh, uh, in the garden, right outside the tomb. So she has that conversation. She's gone back to tell the disciples that Jesus is raised. But of course, being men, they're hard-headed and don't believe the women, uh, much to their own chagrin. However, that same night, uh, Jesus appears to them. But for some reason, Thomas was not there. We are not told where Thomas was, uh, the other disciples are behind locked, closed doors. Thomas, I don't know. I used to kid, he must have run to 7-Eleven for milk. 
and it just was the wrong time to be running to 7-Eleven for milk. Whatever it was that he was doing, he wasn't there. It happened, this is from chapter 20 of the Gospel of John, and I'm beginning with verse 20, uh, 24. It happened that one of the twelve, Thomas, nicknamed the twin, was absent when Jesus came. The other disciples kept telling him, we've seen Jesus. Thomas' answer was, I'll never believe it without putting my finger in the nail marks and my hand into the spear wound. On the eighth day, the disciples were once more in the room, and this time Thomas was with them. Despite the locked doors, Jesus came and stood before them, saying, Peace be with you. Then to Thomas, Jesus said, Take your finger and examine my hands. Put your hand into my side. Don't persist in your unbelief, but believe. Thomas said in response, My Savior and my God. Jesus then said, You've become a believer because you saw me. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. This is the gospel of the Lord for this morning. Thanks be to God. I find a lot of comfort in Thomas. Jesus doesn't show up and say, you pointless, worthless, crud ball of a disciple. Why did I ever waste my time calling you? Can't even believe exactly what I said. Can't even believe when your brothers in faith and sisters in faith told you what happened. What? Uh, get out. Don't ever come back. If my whole certitude thing that I believed up until I was in my mid-twenties was true, he would have been kicked out. And so would have I. And so would anybody else who had doubts. But that's not what happens. Behind locked doors, in some miraculous fashion, Jesus shows up. The other disciples have already seen him. So he just kind of greets him in passing. Peace be with you. And then he speaks directly to Thomas. Thomas, this is what you need. Go ahead, put your fingers in my hands. See, the wounds are still there. I'm still scarred. Transformed, but scarred. Put your hand in my side. Or the side. I don't know which side. Doesn't really matter where the spear was jabbed into Jesus. Put your hand in there. Go ahead. Thomas does, and he believes. Thomas does, and he believes. Now, there are, are some lessons here that have moved me and, and really touched my life. Uh, Many years ago, when I preached Doubting Thomas, because that's what we call him. We don't call Peter Flaky Peter, but uh, we call Doubting Thomas Doubting Thomas. So 
Unfortunately for Thomas, that's how we remember him. But on that Sunday, I happened to be preaching, doubting Thomas. And it was the first uh, time uh, when I was preaching that my good friend Michael and Kristen came to worship that Sunday. And it was that sermon that Michael told me in years to come as our friendship grew had kept him coming to St. James. Because in it I said what I think is one important truth that you need to hear. Yes, a week before Jesus showed up for everybody on the day of the resurrection. He showed up for Mary Magdalene. He showed up for all the disciples in the locked room. But this time just one person needed to see him. Just one. Just Thomas. And for just one, Jesus would show up. Not to rebuke him for his doubt, but so that he might believe. Jesus would show up for any one of us. Not only would he, Jesus does show up for any one of us, for every one of us. God may protect us from nothing, but God sustains us in everything. And that which sustains us is the presence of Christ in those moments. Even when we don't feel it. Even when we're certain, not there. Not there at all. That was a powerful lesson to me. That I only came upon in the early 2000s. Reading it one day. And suddenly it appeared to me, for any one of us, Jesus would show up. Any one of us. But then there's a blessing that's in there that I, I think is important for us to hear. Blessed are those who believe and yet have not seen. Now this is where it gets murky for me because I was always raised to believe that believing and faith was a certitude, that you knew every answer and it was all right. And this is what took the longest time for me to get rid of because faith is not certitude, faith is love. I can't be certain in what way God will show up in today in my life, but I can be certain of this, God will. Now, chances are pretty good when God shows up, I will not notice. <laughs> I will not notice because I am so distracted by any number of other things. I can sit and watch the clouds go by and suddenly realize that God's in those rolling clouds. But it took two hours of watching the clouds roll by for me to even get there. What did I do for the other two hours? I don't know, wasted time. Watch clouds, does it matter? Faith is not certitude. It's not a psychological ascent to a certain list of truths. All those truths were helpful. Let me just take a step back for a minute. It was important what I learned in Sunday school and it's good that I have a sense of what the Bible says from beginning to end and have read it from cover to cover a couple of times. It's not a way I ever recommend any of you read it, but if you want to, go ahead. 
And it's because it jumps all over the place. It's not written in chronological order. It's got all of these mixed in pieces that happen at different times. So if you read it cover to cover, you have to jump around. But if you want to jump around, jump around. But it's not knowing all the facts, although knowing the facts can be helpful. It's when you make the leap of love. I can only know so much about God through the knowledge that even this book, because as good as this book may be, and whatever translation you use, it's probably pretty good. As good as the book may be, do you think an infinite God can fit into a finite book? That this says everything there is to say about God? It says enough so that we can believe. Do you know what the statement right after they tell this Jesus story and this Thomas story? Jesus performed many other signs as well, signs not recorded here in the presence of the disciples. But these have been recorded to help you believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the only begotten, so that by believing you may have life in Jesus' name. There's a lot more that could be said. Even the Gospel of John says that. We could have written down books and books and books. But did we? We didn't need to. We wrote enough for you to believe. Because once you come to a place of leaping off in love, you get to know some things that you didn't know before. Linda and I have been married for just over 30 years. Just over 30 years we've been married. And I still don't know everything there is to know about Linda. And she's a finite being. She sleeps in the same bed I do. I talk to her every day, most days. There have been a few times when we didn't talk to each other. When I was like in another continent or when she was in the hospital and couldn't really know who I was. There were days. There have been days. But I still don't know her. And she's finite. We're talking about the infinite God of the universe. You can't possibly know everything there is to know. And I've been studying a lifetime with the somehow magical belief in my mind I would get to a place where I knew enough. I've got some bad news for you. I've gotten to 60 and I've found that I know less now than I knew when I was 20. It's all perspective. When I was 20, I sure I had God neatly packaged in a box I could sell to whoever I met on the street. And now, I just trust that love is big enough to hold us all. And that my doubts are indeed, as Rachel Held Evans said, a gateway to a deepening faith. I was afraid to let go of some of the things in my life. The things that I doubted, whew, no doubt, no doubt until I was 25, and still to this day, there are things that pop up in my brain and I'm like, what if I'm wrong about this? What if I'm teaching other people the wrong things about this? What if I'm held accountable, like James chapter three says, for it, and I get some extra lashes? I don't think that's gonna happen. God wants me to truthfully leap off in love and trust that 
God's love is infinite and bottomless and leaping off in love means I'll never get to the bottom. I'll just keep falling and falling and falling and falling ever deeper in this love. And I'll see things along the way about who God is. Like for instance, how can we imagine that a three letter word, G-O-D, points to infinite reality? even begins to comprehend all there is. It's a finger pointing. It's a finger pointing. But that word encompasses so much more. Moses gets the answer that we need to hear, the burning bush. I am who I am. That's who God is. I am who I am. I will be who I will be. I do what I do. That's who God is, the ground of our connection to all things. So if you're struggling with doubt, good for you. If you think it makes you an unfaithful person to struggle with doubt, I want to say to you right now, it does not. I'm not one of those pastors that says, put aside all of your thinking, put aside all of your feelings, put aside everything, and just be obedient. Obedient to what? To which pieces of the Bible? Are you supposed to start wearing hats again when you come to church? Are you supposed to stone people who commit adultery outside the city walls, wherever those are? Are we supposed to go back to those rules? Which rules? Are we supposed to read that book as it points to the infinite and stand in awe and wonder of an amazing God that loves us so much that like for Thomas would come back for any one of us. Any one of you matters that much to God. And even though sometimes I discount myself, even I, God would come back even for me. And for all of you. And for any one of you. Because God loves you that much. God is the love that you experience in your everyday life. The best of the best, the most beautiful. And if you struggle to receive that love, join the club. If you doubt that God could love even you, that's a doubt I wish we could dispel for you. Because you see, the one thing I know beyond a doubt for myself is the unconditional and infinite love of God. I take seriously the words in Romans, for I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord, nothing. No thing can separate you from God, nothing. You're already connected. You are already loved. You can't do anything about it. Except learn to love back and accept that love where it comes. Sit with your doubts this week. Give yourself permission to doubt. When things start to come unglued, sometimes those are the gateways, as Rachel Held Evans told us, as Richard encouraged us to see. Doubt can be the invitation to a deeper place in faith, a deeper trust, 
a deeper leaning. If you doubt, you and I are on the same page. And you and I are both loved unconditionally and infinitely for the persons we are. Sit with your doubt. Be gentle with yourself when you do doubt. And trust that love is stronger than any doubt you might ever have. And keep leaping into your doubts with love. One of the things we do every week at St. James is pray. I want to pray for all the people in the world who are struggling with doubt. And they're struggling with doubt for different kinds of reasons. Early in our faith, oftentimes we are tied to a specific set of convictions that we feel like are non-negotiable. And then we hit a wall of doubt. And we wonder, is this non-negotiable or is it not? And that question is one you ask of God and yourself and you find your way through. Well, there are people who are struggling with their faith. There are people who are hungry. There are people in pain, people who are the victims of violence. There are people who are perpetrators of violence for no apparent reason. We live in a world of contradictions and uncertainties that are often filled with doubts. And so we hold the world in our hearts we say the names of people we love because we trust that the Spirit of God moves in and through us as we speak those words to do whatever it is to release Spirit into the world in ways we cannot imagine. And so we think of people like Doris and Dick and all of Craig's family. We think of David, who I saw for the first time in a really long time at Easter sunrise last week, who is still having cancer treatment and still fighting and plugging away. I think of, I think of people I don't even know in Ukraine. I think of the six young adults that I'm working with, the fellows at Appalachia Service Project, because three weeks from today, they leave the fellows program. You know, they've spent the last year doing work at Appalachian Poverty Income uh, in Appalachia, and they're about to move forward. Some of them have specific plans, some of them not as much but I want to pray for them as they're making that transition and as I'm transitioning from being their chaplain. I want to pray for the world and trust that God will hear our prayers. So we'll begin in a moment of silent prayer. Anything in your heart, you can call that out. I'll pray briefly aloud for us and then we'll join together in the Lord's Prayer a version of which is on the screen, but please just pray the version you know if you want to. Pray the version on the screen if you want to, or none at all, in the language that you know, because God hears it all. 
Could we enter into a moment of silent prayer together? Thank you, eternal mystery, for Thomas and his witness for us. Thanks for showing up for just him. Thanks for giving us a model of what it looks like to be faithful and still to question. Thank you for loving us just as we are, for making us to be embodiments of your love in this world. Help us, O oh God, to embody that love. And when we're certain, great. And when we doubt, great. Help us not to make an idol of certitude as if certitude could be you, but help us to fall back ever trustingly into the love you are pouring out in and through us, as us, in this moment. We pray for those who are struggling, who are feeling deep pain, who have lost people they love. We pray for those who are hungry and those who are homeless and those who are struggling. We pray for the victims of violence and we pray even for those who perpetrate violence that their hearts may be transformed We pray that we'd learn to love better. We pray that we'd learn to be loved for our neighbors so that they could see just a glimpse of you in us. We give you thanks that you gave us minds to doubt, even though sometimes it drives us over the edge. You're always waiting for us as we go over that edge to catch us in your infinite love. Thank you for one another. Thank you for this journey of faith. Thank you for Jesus and his witness of love. To get to see what it looks like in human flesh is absolutely amazing. Thanks for that love. We pray now the prayer that he modeled for us in his life, saying, our Father in heaven, Holy is your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Save us from the time of trial and deliver us from evil. For the kingdom, the power, and the glory are yours now and forever. Amen.